Good morning. What we did uh, here is really important. We took a few moments to reflect and remember, right, what transpired last week. Isn't that cool? It's really important to do that kind of thing in life. In fact, uh, um, I'm one that likes to go back and, and kind of remember some things that we've gone through. And I'm, I, I praise God that we have, I have a wife that uh, is an organizer and does some of these things that help for uh, that to be accomplished in my life. And so it, it, at Christmas or some other time of the year when it's kind of a reflective moment in life, I, I'll find my favorite chair that's conformed to my backside real well. And I'll, I'll sit in it and I might pull one of these old albums out that we have and begin to look through the pictures. Do you ever do that? I love to do that kind of stuff. And I look at all the kids when they were little and I remember you know, when they were 4-H and they had lambs and they had rabbits and when they were doing volleyball and, and uh, basketball, we had pictures of all that kind of stuff. And you kind of just go through and remember all that stuff. And it's really good for my soul. And I think, how did they grow up so fast? It was just yesterday when there were six of them running all over the house, right, being loud. And now we have uh, none running around the house being loud. Um, our youngest is 23 and I have 13 grandkids. And I think, I'm not that old. Some of you relate to me. It's, it's really a, a difficult thing. But the remembering is really good for my soul. And as I was pulling these out last night, Vicki was helping me. And I found this one that was given to me as I left uh, New Hope Church in Williston and, and, and responded to the call to come here. And they had put together this uh, memory book for me. And they had written letters and put their pictures in here. And this is from all the different families of the church. And I uh, was looking through this and uh, just kind of got overwhelmed, you know, with the goodness of God and, and how so many people are so precious, you know, in, in my life and, and how that 10 years went by so fast and it was so meaningful. And it's just good to do that. And we go on trips now frequently, and we bring the grandkids with us. And Vicky will put together one of these, like, Shutterfly little booklets. Some of you know what we're, I'm talking about here. And I'm looking at this one with her last night, and we're going, the kids are already grown up. They're, this, they're, they're not small. They're small in this picture. But these grandkids are now huge. You know, they're starting to look, well, they're taller than her. That doesn't mean that much, but they're taller than her. Um, and, 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 you know, they're starting to, to be young men and women. And I go, wow, the time goes by. And it's so good to remember and, and, and take opportunities like, like that to recall what God has done and how good he's been in our lives. You know, Easter is a, a moment to remember. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to recall the goodness of God and what we really have in his son, Jesus Christ. And I did something I haven't done for a while as I was getting ready for Easter this year. I began to look at all the old messages over the last several years that we have done at Grace Point over the Easter season. And I began to reflect and recall the big points and what God was up to and what was going on in our church lives at that time. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do this year? I'm going to just spend a few moments with you remembering the last five Easter's. Because what we do every Easter is I, I go to one point hard and heavy but there's this big picture when it comes to Easter, I think, that's sometimes lost in, in, in maybe a specific message or two. And so what we're going to do for a few moments is take a trip of, uh, of remembering. Now, if you haven't been here, you'll pick up on it pretty quick. All right? But just imagine you're sitting at home right now in your favorite chair. All right? Whatever that is. Couch, chair, whatever. Imagine with me that you're sitting there, and we're going to go through 
some picture albums together uh, of the last five years here at Grace Point, and I'm going to highlight for you, I think, what is the picture of that year, what, what some of the things that we uh, should recall. So I'm going to begin with the year 2013. In 2013, we did a series at Easter, or a message at Easter, I should say, um, called Seven Last Sayings of Christ. And when someone is dying, what they say at the end of their life usually is of utmost importance. And Christ said some things as his life was being poured out that are of the utmost importance for you and I to understand and grasp. So he's being crucified in the cross. His life is flowing out from him. And he looks down upon his accusers. He looks down upon the soldiers that are casting lots for his clothing. And he says, Father... Do you remember what he says? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the one word that encapsulates that last saying of Jesus Christ is forgiveness. He has come so that you and I can experience forgiveness for our sins. And, and as he goes further on in that crucifixion, we're told that he's hung between two criminals, one on his right, one on his left. One's hurling insults at him. The other one looks at him and says, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And he turns to that criminal who is pleading for mercy and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. And the one word that encapsulates that last saying of Christ is the word salvation. Christ is all about salvation. That's why he's come. That's why he went to the cross. And then as his story continues to unfold on the cross, he's looking down and he sees his mother there and he sees the disciple whom he loves there and he looks at his mother and he says, woman, this is now your son. And he looks at the disciple, this is now your mother. And from that point on, the Lord's mother lived with that disciple whom Jesus loved. And we see from this interaction, this last saying of Jesus Christ, that he's all about relationship. Even as he's dying, he's concerned about his mother's well-being and about her relationship and her being taken care of. But then he gets to a couple of words or a couple of sayings that are, are reflective, I think, of the human condition and uh, things that we all experience. Um, it's the ninth hour, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, he's taking the weight of the, uh, of the world's sin upon his shoulders, and he's feeling lonely, he's, and he's feeling abandoned. And so the word that encapsulates that saying is abandonment. Don't we all feel that at times? Even in a crowded place like this, you can feel super lonely, and you can feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. And we have a Savior who experienced that very thing and relates to us. He's a sympathetic high priest. And then as his crucifixion continues on, um, Knowing that all had been completed and that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, um, oh, yeah, he did say this. I'm thirsty, all right? I'm thirsty. And basically what we see there with, with that statement by Christ is that he experienced what could be called distress. He understood the, 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 what it felt like to die, he, he knew what it felt like to go through the distress of something terribly hard. And he's the Savior then that we know relates to us on that level. The last two sayings of Jesus are more uh, what I would call the celebrative kind, the more triumphal kind. So he's on the cross, and he gets to the end of his experience there, and he says, it is finished. Now that is a 
pregnant statement. It's full of meaning. What he's saying by that statement is, I have done the work you've sent me to do, Father. I have completed the task that has been ordained for me. I've run the race marked out for me, and I finished it. Sin has been taken care of. Death has been conquered. It is finished. And that is a statement of triumph. That, that saying of Christ could be considered a triumphal statement. And then one other thing happens. He cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. And with that statement, we know that he was um, one again with the Father. He experienced reunion with his Father. He saw his Father face to face. And we too one day will have that same experience if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. These seven last sayings of Christ encapsulated by those one word phrases, they kind of are important. Well, I shouldn't say kind of. They're extraordinarily important. Amen? And they, 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 they give us a picture of what Jesus was about, what his life was all about. Now, after each one of these years, after we finish each review, I'm going to say he is risen. And you're going to respond by saying he is risen indeed, okay? Some of you are wondering if I forgot that this year, weren't you? So here we go. He is risen. He is risen so in 2014, um, that Easter season, we looked at... The, 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 the life of Christ, the death of Christ, his resurrection from the angle of overflowing hope. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Easter is a time where we can once again affirm that we have a certain sure hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That just as God's power raised him from the dead. That same power is at work in us who believe in Christ and will raise us from the dead also. And that should be an overflowing hope that floods into every area of our lives. Uh, this last Friday and Saturday, we headed down to Lincoln, Nebraska and visited seven of our 13 grandkids. They were there at one house at one place. So we traveled down there. It was 61 degrees, by the way, on Friday down there. And I thought, oh, God, send it north, send it north. And then it turned cold there, and it was really cold here. It was 15 degrees this morning when I got up. I thought, oh, man, I wish I was in Nebraska. At any rate, on the way home, I noticed all the water in the ditches and stuff. And at this time of year, we talk a lot about rivers overflowing their banks. And there's a picture of that behind what happens with the big sewer. It overflows its banks and floods. It gets to that nine-foot stage. And the banks cannot contain it. Listen. That's what Easter is about. It is a time where, where our hope in Christ should just overflow the banks of our lives, right? Even for you Midwesterners, you're all so, so conservative and so quiet. Every now and then you should go, hallelujah, I'm so happy. I can hardly stand it because I know my Savior lives and it just overflows, amen? So Easter is an excuse for you all to be happy. I give you permission. God's good, isn't he? That was the year 2014. Here we go. He is risen. In 2015, we look at Easter from the angle of who is this man? Who really is Jesus? And the answer is really quite simple. He is the Christ. Now, when we say that answer, he is the Christ, that is full of meaning. It means he is the Son of God. He is part of the Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always been part of the Trinity, always will be part of the Trinity. He put on flesh, became incarnate. That means he dwelt among his creation. He's God up close and personal. When you see Jesus, you see God. He is fully God. He is fully man. He was crucified for our sins. He was resurrected from the dead. He's Savior of those who trust. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now. He's our advocate. That's what is meant by the label 
table. He is the Christ. Now, settle into your comfortable chair for a moment with me, all right? Sit in your comfortable chair and just imagine that you're thinking some thoughts on Jesus. They should go something like this. He's really too mysterious for us to define. We can't put him into a box. Don't do that. It's impossible. He's too obvious to deny. All creation speaks of the reality of its creator, of God. He's too great to manage. You cannot manage Jesus Christ. He's too great to be managed. He's too loving to mistrust. He's so loving, he laid it on his life for us. He's too powerful to battle. He'll win every time. He's too fatherly to ever forget. He's the perfect father. He's too kind to ignore. He's too right to go wrong. Amen? That's our Jesus. He is risen, you say? Now we're to 2016. That year's message was all about the big give of God at Easter. The big give of all time is this idea that Christ came to give his life up so that we may have life. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We sometimes think that we give sacrificially. If you have children, you may think, Wow, I just give and I just give and I just give to these guys. And they're not very grateful. Do you ever think that? Listen, God knows what it means to give. He so loved, he gave his only son. He is risen, you say. Now we're to the year 2017. This message was all about reasons to believe in the resurrection. It was kind of an apologetic message. We have an informed faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a blind faith. We have reasons to believe that the resurrection really took place just as we're told in the Bible. Let me give you some of the reasons why. Here's the first one. The empty tomb was discovered by women. In that culture, at that time, that was not the starting point of making a legend. Because in that culture, at that time, women were not considered credible witnesses. I'm not making this up. Don't get mad at me if you're a woman. That's just the way it was back then. If you're going to make a legend, this is not how you would start it. The empty tomb's location was known, which allowed for verification of it being empty. That was a bad move. If you were wanting to create a legend, you would try to make it so people couldn't find out the story. You wouldn't know the location of the tomb. You wouldn't allow it to be verifiable. Amen? But it was right there where everybody could see what had happened. Those opposed to Jesus Christ's resurrection didn't deny the empty tomb when they were told about it, but rather they chose to discredit it by, by creating a false report. They just chose to make a false report up. Now, here's one that really helps me to believe in the account of the resurrection. The realistic account of the disciples supports the resurrection's validity. Their storytelling about this thing, they did not look like heroes. They did not look like they were making up a legend. They looked like a bunch of bubbling buffoons at times. Didn't know what was going on. Then they were confused and, and asking questions they ought not to be asking and, you know, not believing when they ought to be believing. And it just the whole story is so real. You go, I don't think you'd make it up like this if you're making it up. The accuracy of the resurrection is reinforced by the short time period between its occurrence and then written accounts about it. Now, the Bible is an amazingly 
uh, historically accurate book. It goes, its manuscripts go all the way back to within, you know, 50, 60 years uh, of Jesus. Um, but what's really the thing that got me uh, was how even secular historians at the time of Christ wrote about him, wrote about his death, wrote about his resurrection. You had Tacca, uh, Tacitus from Rome writing about him, and you had Josephus the Jew writing about Christ. Josephus was a historian at the time of Jesus. He wrote these four volumes of history that all around the time of Jesus Christ. And for fun, sometimes I, I just, I read these for fun. I'm a sad man, aren't I? At any rate, volume number four, volume number four has uh, uh, an excerpt written about Christ. Listen to what Josephus writes about Christ. He said, now there was about this time, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named after him are not extinct to this day. This is a Jewish historian writing about Jesus Christ in secular history. Okay, are you getting this? And I, I read such things, I go, hmm, I don't know about you, but that does a lot for my soul to convince me that the resurrection was true. There are many eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. In fact, there were over 500. If you're going to make up a legend and make up a story, you don't say there's 500 witnesses to that because there's too many than that could what? I'd say, uh, that's not true. There are like, so many witnesses is ridiculous. And then this last point for me, this last piece of logic is really the one that speaks to my soul. Many of the early disciples were willing to die as martyrs because they saw the resurrected Jesus. Hey, if this thing was a lie and you knew it was a lie and you knew it was a made-up story, would you die for it? But so many early believers died horrific deaths a martyrdom rather than deny Jesus Christ. You know why? Because it's true. He is risen, you say? Hey, we're to Easter 2018 now, and I want to add a picture to our photo album today, and it's this, the dead do rise. The dead do rise. This question, this big question, has haunted, I think, mankind from the beginning. What happens to a person when they die? And what you believe to be the answer to that question really factors into how you live your life and what influences your life. You know, the ancient Egyptians believed that the life after the one here on earth required the physical body that you had here on this earth. So they spent a lot of energy mummifying their leaders so that they would have a body for the future life. We wonder why, why all these Egyptian mummies? Well, because they believed that you needed this body for the next life. So they went to great extents mummifying their leaders. What you believe about the next life, what you believe about death and resurrection will drastically affect how you do this life. Some believe this life is all there is. 
This is called termination. Like a dog or a cat, when we die, life is just done. Some believe that. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing to such ones who had that belief, said, if you believe that, then he said this. This is the Apostle Paul. We might as well eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. See, what you believe about resurrection will affect how you live today. Others believe in what is called absorption, which says everyone has a divine spark in them, and when you die, that spark floaters to the galactic collection of divine sparks, and after a while, it's reborn into a different kind of life form, a different kind of spark. It's called re- reincarnation. Some believe that's what life is all about. What you think about death, what you think about resurrection or the next life will profoundly affect how you live this life. Now, the Apostle Paul is ministering to this Corinthian church, right? And the Corinthian church had a lot of baggage. The Corinthian folk had a lot of baggage when it came to death and resurrection. They had a very influential teacher in their culture named Plato. You ever hear of Plato? I'm not talking Play-Doh. I'm talking Plato, okay? Plato. He was an ancient philosopher, and he really, really affected this culture. Now, Plato taught that the life we live, this physical life we live right now, is really nasty, it's really ugly, it's really gross, and there's a day coming then when you die, and you will become a spiritual being, and it'll be kind of this misty, woo-woo thing. But Plato taught that the resurrection of our body, or resurrection to a new body, That would be like resurrection to a second hell. He thought that was really nasty and evil. So when the Apostle Paul was teaching the Corinthian church about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, they really struggled with that concept. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. And they did what most of us do when we come to a hard concept in the Bible that they don't like. What do you think we do? We ignore it or we minimize it. Or we say it doesn't really apply to us. The trouble is the resurrection is the central thing of the Christian faith, right? And I think in our culture today, it's not for this particular reason of Plato, but I think the resurrection is ignored way too much and diminished way too much to our harm. Maybe we think we're too sophisticated for it now, or maybe we don't want to argue about it with people, whatever be the case. But the resurrection of Christ is central to our our, our faith in God. And listen to what the Apostle Paul teaches about this huge question, what happens to uh, the one who dies and his teaching on resurrection as he talks to this Corinthian church. Now, you got their background on them who are really struggling with what resurrection is all about. All right, I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 23. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for he testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, um, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is fruitful, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Amen? 
See, here's our big thought this morning. The dead do rise. I'm going to say that again, and you're going to say amen. The dead do rise. Amen. Amen. They do. The dead do rise. To the Corinthians, at the time of Paul's writing to them, the thought of resurrection from the dead to them was kind of repulsive because of their cultural influence. But then the Apostle Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to explain something about resurrection. He says, listen, the body sown here, the one that dies, that's perishable. The one that's resurrected is imperishable. The body that's sown here, it's sown in dishonor. The one that's raised, it's raised in honor. The one sown here, it's sown in weakness. The one raised by God, it's raised in power. The one sown here is a natural body. The one raised is a spiritual body. But here's the point the Apostle Paul's making. Heaven will be populated by folk with bodies. You see, you're hearing that? Heaven isn't this misty, woo-woo kind of place where you just float along. That's not heaven. He said, heaven's going to be populated with people who have a new body. Amen? That's his point. And Jesus was raised from the dead as that first fruits of what is to come then. So that's point number one if you're taking points. Jesus was raised from the dead as the first fruits. Now, first fruits is explained for us in detail all the way back in the Bible in Leviticus in the Old Testament. What, what it's about is this. The Israelites were to take the grain that was the first ripening grain of their field and offer it to the Lord. You've got to understand something about farming back in the day that Leviticus was written. They didn't have equipment. They did it all by hand. And so they would plant the field by stages, right? And so what would happen is that the, that the crop would harvest or, excuse me, would ripen in stages. And they would harvest in stages. And what God told them was this. You make sure that you take that first piece that's ripened, harvest it, and that comes to me as an offering. What did that imply? Well, the rest of the field's not harvested yet. So I'm taking the only grain from all my labor that I could eat that could sustain me, and what am I doing with it? I'm bringing it as an offering to God, and I'm basically saying by that offering, God, bring in the rest of the harvest. Please bring in the rest of the harvest, because I'm giving you everything I have right now. It was a statement of utter dependence upon God. First fruits giving was about being dependent upon God. Listen, we often do an offering here. The offering needs to have to it this coloring, this hue, that it's a declaration, I'm depending on you, God. That's why we do that, you guys. Are you understanding that? Part of the reason we give is it's every time we do it, it's a declaration, I'm dependent on you, God. I'm dependent on you, God. So then the priest would get this grain offering, and he'd wave it, and he would take some of it, mix it with some oil, and he would burn it as, as a burnt offering to God. And guess what that would give off? This aroma. And the aroma would go out to the community. You know, and the smell would be him to get there. And, oh, people would think about, oh, God, please bring in the grain. I could smell it. I'm anticipating it. Please bring it in. And then the priest would do something I think is kind of mean. He'd make some of it into bread. You ever smelled baking bread? So we were in 
Nebraska this last weekend, and Liz, my daughter, my oldest daughter, makes homemade bread. And I got there Friday, and there was no bread. I did what any dad does. I began to ask her why. And what was wrong? And kind of tried to hint at it. We should have some bread. <laughs> she knows I love this bread. So she gets up Saturday, and she grinds the wheat herself. See, she grinds the wheat in the mill, and she puts it in her Bosch mixer and starts mixing the bread up, and I'm going, oh, good. You know, we're going to have bread. And then she puts it in the oven. Oh, oh, oh. it smells so good, doesn't it? Baking bread. And so then we're going to have it for lunch, and we're supposed to have sandwiches. I said, forget the meat. I want peanut butter and jelly on my bread. I, I'm like a two-year-old. And I, I take two slices. It's still hot. You can hardly cut it. And I put the peanut butter and it melts. Are you getting hungry? <laughs> it melts on that bread. And I put the jelly on it. And I eat it and I close my eyes. I go, oh, oh, thank you, God, for taste buds, right? This is so good. I eat two pieces and I'm kind of full. The bread fills you up. This is, this is not Weight Watcher bread. This stuff is dense. It weighs a lot. And I thought, I'm going to eat a third piece. And I ate that third piece, and I, then I felt kind of re remorseful. I was a little sick because I ate so much. But it was so good that I just couldn't resist it. Now, get this. The priests are burning the grain and the oil for an offering. They're baking bread, and the aroma is going throughout the community. And what that aroma did was create in that community an anticipation of what was to come. Harvest was coming. Harvest was coming. I could smell it. I could smell it. I could smell it. When Christ is referred to as the first fruits, guess what? We're supposed to kind of smell what's coming. We're supposed to put that together and realize, okay, God, this is what's coming. This is what lies ahead for us. Like you've raised him from the dead and given him this powerful body. We too, who put our faith in him, we're going to have that same experience. I can smell it. I can smell it. It's the first fruits of what is to come. The dead do rise. Say that with me. The dead do rise. That's to drastically change how we live. Now, we have to understand that the resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. When the, when the uh, ancients built a house in the time of, uh, of the Bible. They would lay their cornerstone and everything would be built off that and would be true and straight if that cornerstone was laid correctly. Now, what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 uh, Corinthians 15 here is if, if you don't lay a, a correct cornerstone down in your life, everything will be amiss. And what he's saying is if you don't believe that God has raised Christ from the dead, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you're laying down a faulty cornerstone, so to speak, to your structure of faith. And everything you build on that is going to be skewed. Because if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we're false witnesses. Preaching like I'm doing is, is, is in vain. Um, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. We're still separated from God. And we're to be pitied more than all other people because we've been duped. But he has been raised from the dead. And then all these things find proper alignment. As I mentioned in our, my review of Easter 2017, I think what was a turning point for me as a follower of God was this idea that so many saw Jesus resurrected firsthand and impacted them so much 
that when you read the early history of the church, people were dying right and left for Christ rather than deny him. And I said, that simply means to me that Jesus really rose from the dead. Okay, say it with me. The dead do rise. Here we go. The dead do rise. I want to leave you with this one reflection question. How does the resurrection then change the way I live? Think on that. How does it change the way you live? Because it should. It should affect how you live. Now, here's what I know it does for me. I can't answer that question for you. I want you to think on it. But here's how I'd answer that question for me. I live as a person in the know about Jesus, which means this, okay? I know, I'm informed, I'm convinced of the idea and the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. I am convinced of that without a doubt in my mind. I've researched it every way imaginable for me personally. I am 100% thoroughly convinced that Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. I can smell what God is up to. He's the first fruits of what is to come. I'm anticipating that just as God has raised my Savior from the grave, the grave could not contain him, one day too, like those who have gone before me, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, just like they've experienced, I will experience that same power in my life that raised Christ from the dead. It will raise me also from the dead. That's what I know, and that's what I'm convinced of. That's what it means to me that the resurrection has changed the way I do life. I am 100% convinced of that. No one could shake me on that. Where do you stand? Are you convinced? Because if you're convinced of that, it'll change how you do life, how you see people, how you view God. Amen? It'll convince you. So now we have our 2018 picture. The dead do rise. We can add it to our photo album. Someday we can reflect on this one too. If you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you. Do it. <laughs> There's so much proof. Ours is a reasoned faith and an informed faith. And one day, too, then, you'll be raised from the dead. Amen? And you'll see your Savior face to face because the dead do rise. And I want to rise to be with Christ in heaven. How about you? Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for uh, the patience of the folk here as I walk through some memories over the last five years as a church. It's a good thing to reflect and to ponder who you are, Jesus, and what Easter's all about. And I don't think we can do it in one sitting like this. I don't even think we can come close. But I, I want to praise you, Jesus, that uh, you're the one who forgives and saves and you're about relationship and, and all those things we talked about in that 2013 message, Lord. You, you triumphed and you're uh, all about what is to come. You're the first fruits, Lord, of what lies ahead for us who put our faith in you. I want to praise you, God, that the grave could not contain your son, that uh, he rose from the dead, the first fruits of what is to come. And I had the smell of that in my nostrils this morning, Lord. I am anticipating uh, what lies ahead for those of us who have placed our faith in you, Jesus, that we too one day will experience resurrection and our bodies, these corruptible, weak bodies that give us so many problems at times, they'll be laid to rest, but we'll be born again, and so to speak, into this glorious body, or, or renewed, I should say, into this glorious body, Lord, that is without fault, that's incorruptible, that doesn't perish. 
God, I, I look forward to that day. I want to pray for any here this morning, Lord, that don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day they put their faith in you, Jesus, and just simply pray, come to my heart and be my Savior, Jesus. And I pray for such a one that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and that they too would be anticipating then the day when they'll be raised from the dead and see you face to face, God. Just thank you for this day. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our resurrected Savior. Help us to never lose the primacy of that thought, Lord. It is central to our faith in you. I just pray that we would never allow it to be diminished or sidelined or say it's not important. It is of the utmost importance. And we base our faith in you on it, Jesus, that you have been resurrected from the dead just as promised. And we love you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.